What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. I am your host, Eric, the Duke of Sports Sklar. I am joined by my co-host, the one and only Mr. 360, Tyler Pacholke, and, of course, co-host, producer extraordinaire, Jacob Gonzalez. Before we start the show, thank you so much for listening, everyone. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow all of us as well at The Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double Underscore Gonzalez. On this episode of The TSK Show, Jacob and I are in studio. Tyler will be joining us on the phone, and we will also be joined by a special guest, good friend of the Sports Kingdom show, Ryan Gilderman. We are going to catch up with Ryan and see what he has been doing to keep himself occupied during this quarantine without live sports. He'll also help us recap the Last Dance episodes 5 and 6. We're also going to settle some baseball debates that Tyler found in an ESPN article published last week. To close the show, we'll talk about the impact of Andy Dalton signing with the Dallas Cowboys. All right, let's start the show. What's going on, Jacob? How you doing, man? I'm good. Just another day, you know? Yeah. Tyler, how you doing, man? Oh, just quarantining, you know? <laughs> Getting it in. Yeah? And what have you been doing to get it in? You've been working out at home? Are you talking to me? Yeah, I'm talking to you. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, I've been, uh, recently I've been getting out. I've been going on, like, long walks to the city and stuff like that. Okay. Uh, where I was I was hitting the stationary bike, but now I'm trying to get outside a little more. That was nice out. Yeah, get some fresh air, you know? Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, tonight is a very special night. We have a, uh, a guest joining us for the second time, a good friend of the show, none other than Ryan Gilderman. Ryan, how are you, man? I'm good, man. How's it going? I, I agree. Uh, you know, Tyler, just, just quarantining out here, trying to stay healthy. How about you guys? Uh, Jacob and I, luckily, we, we still have been working, which has been nice. Uh, so I think that's kind of kept us sane for the most part. Definitely. but oh, 100%. But on my on my days off, it's been a lot of video games and a lot of Netflix. So, I think uh, yeah, I've been playing so much. I just I, for the last maybe ten years, including like this one, I, I've had an Xbox 360. Been really really behind on the curve, <laughs> and I've been playing 2K16. And like players are retired. Oh wow! Some are like no longer. So I I was like, you know what? I, I I'm working as well. So I was like, I got to splurge on something. And I bought myself an Xbox One, 2K20, but I'm so bad at it. Like, it's ridiculous. I'm terrible. People run me up. I'm playing as, the, I'm playing as like, the 91 Bulls and getting swept, like, <laughs> swept by the Phoenix Suns 2020 team. Yeah, the controls get harder, don't they? I know. It's ridiculous. So is that, is that one of the things you've been up to mostly during this quarantine besides working from home is uh, video games? Yeah. 
playing video games, uh, really just, I mean, the hinges pop in these days, but um, just kind of going on walks around my neighborhood. I'm, I'm with my parents in, like in the valley, so just kind of going on those kinds of walks. You got swimming, on any like you got on any FaceTime right? dates? One or two, one or two. Okay. It's a little strange. Yeah. It's strange. I'm so used to buying the first round. I like realize I don't have to like Venmo them to like pay <laughs> for the bill. Like, like they should just have the drinks in their in their fridge. It's kind of a weird like dynamic. You well, know? at least you're saving money. I know. My bank account is so happy during quarantine, man. It's going to it's going to suck going back to like the bungalow and spending you know, upwards of a hundred bucks on drinks. Yeah, no, I don't miss those days. That's for sure. What's I mean, a, we all got to go ahead. Go ahead. What's, what's been the worst part about quarantine for you? Um, the worst part, I let my sister cut my hair. Um, and I mean, you know, my sister is not a trained barber any sense. So no, it's not growing all. back in a weird fashion. And it looks it looks just strange to she me. She give you a buzz cut, uh, or did you did she use scissors? Uh, she buzzed it. So she, so I get my hair cut on the sides. I go like zeros on the sides, and then on the top, I you know I let them mess around with that when I go to like when I go to the hair uh, the barbershop or whatever. But um, she just kind of chopped the mop on the top, just straight up buzz cut. Um, it didn't match. Like she didn't use the right size razors, so it's kind of like the the top is growing in at a very slow rate, and the sides are growing in very very fast. And it's it's getting uncomfortable to look at a mirror. Like, and I also have a goatee, so just kind of not going to a barber shop, not being able to see the homies, those kinds of things. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the haircut because I couldn't I couldn't take it this weekend and my cousin he was over and i was like you know what dude i trust you just do what you can really and, and, he, and he cut it yeah he gave me a cut honestly it's, it's pretty solid not you know not gonna lie but i would prefer to go to the barber but i think at just some point you just can't take it anymore that you're like screw it honestly i noticed yeah. you, you trimmed your beard but i didn't notice the, the hair. haircut yeah because you're still long on top so it's still long on top but i just had to get rid of the sides it starts getting itchy man it's and then you yeah. wear headphones at work. I mean, we wear headphones at work, and it, it sucks to have all the hair just kind of in your ears. Yeah, I haven't gotten a haircut yeah. since March thirteenth. Damn. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, mine was my my hair was starting to look like a cockatoo, and I was just I was getting <laughs> sick of it. It was and it grows in my neck hair grows in at an exponential rate. It's disgusting. It's like a werewolf back there. So I just needed to I needed some kind of shave. And I said the same thing. Uh, I think was that Jacob that just said like, yeah, I yeah. trust you." Yeah, I said the same thing to my sister, and like, I, I no longer do trust her. My hair looks terrible. Well, you're gonna have <laughs> to find a new quarantine barber. I, I'm just gonna let it grow back to cockatoo status at this point because I'm sick of this. I don't know. It just looks terrible. It looks awful. But um, you know, can't. She's not. She's not a. You know, she's not a barber. So. I can't. I can't blame her. Yeah, I mean, she she did her best. But now that you got your haircut, though, uh, that that could have been one of the first things that you do when all this is lifted. So, since the haircut is already done, when all this quarantine is lifted, what are you, uh, what are you thinking about doing first? Well, I, I mean, I miss. I'm like live in L.A. I live in, I live in Sautel, like that area, and so 
I miss just like going out. I was honestly considering, I mean, this, I, the more I joke about this, the more I become more serious, was just kind of taking a week off from work. Cause you know, we still are grinding like at work, um, even though it's work from home and just kind of like actually seeing the city, like exploring restaurants in some kind of way, like going to places I don't usually go to. And then every night just going to one of my favorite bars, whether I drink or not, doesn't matter. Just exploring the city in a different way sounds amazing. But bungalow on a Tuesday morning would be <laughs> ideal at this point. But yeah, I don't know. What about you guys? I mean, I, I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty, I'm pretty just, I miss my office. I miss my office atmosphere. Atmosphere. It's, it's very different. I'm, I work in sales, so it's very like like our our floor has the energy of uh, that scene from Wolf of Wall Street. Just minus yeah, I was just the about cocaine. to say that was like the first thing yeah. I pictured. Yeah, right, exactly. So that I mean, it's it's just like that. Everybody gets excited for each other, like kind of atmosphere, and it's kind of weird, you know. If I if I get a sale or a meeting in the morning, like nobody in my house is awake. Um, like I have to almost celebrate in quiet, like in the quiet <laughs> or I'll wake my dogs and hence wake up the rest of the family. And then it's a fight and it's not a celebration. So I just kind of miss the atmosphere of my office and just the city itself. Uh, well, they're milestones nonetheless. Yeah, of course. What's, what's it been like for you without live sports? Um, uh, it's yeah, it's been tough, man. Um, I big basketball guy. I know that like this. I, just the idea that this year was going to be our the Lakers year. It hurts me um, to to just to no end thinking about where this season was going to go. Um, mostly it was just basketball and, and the idea that you know football might not happen. I actually went to my first Rams game, like first football game ever professional this past year. And like, I loved it. My friend and I are like kind of, my friend is a huge Tampa Bay Bucks fan. And so given the, uh, given the circumstances, I have a Mike Evans Jersey. We're excited. We were going to make a plan to go to Vegas to see the Bucks and, and the Raiders. So like the idea that that might not happen is like, it's been tough. Um, And it's really, I mean, it's, kind of boring TV a lot. Like life is kind of boring without sports. I didn't realize how much it kept us going. It's like the blood pump of literally everything. Yeah. I think when the NBA suspended its season, that that's what made it real for a lot of people with, with the situation with COVID-19 and yeah. everybody taking it like another, like a further steps more serious, you know? Yeah, I mean, at first I was like, okay, like they're they're just gonna not have an they're not gonna have a fan base come to the games, and honestly, I, I prefer it. Like, obviously, I want to watch the games, like I I want to watch the game, but there's something about the energy of a stadium um, that I think like influences the players. Like, I don't think LeBron James would do as crazy of dunks if there's not like fans on the sidelines cheering him on. I think it would just kind of just be like watching a pickup basketball game, um, which like in one way sounds nice, but also like, it's just something like that atmosphere. I almost prefer that. Like, even if I'm not there, I feel as, I feel as if I am there 
when the crowd goes crazy, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, since so let me ask you this. You're a big NBA guy. Now, if you're Adam yeah. Silver, how do you go about opening this season? Do you even open it or do you wait until next season? You know, do you try to salvage whatever you can of the remaining of uh, of this uh, season that was still going on? Um, I mean, it's kind of – I actually had an idea – um, like, uh, like I was thinking it was one of those nights where, you know, you're up, you're thinking about these things, you miss sports. Um, and I just kind of had this like epiphany, like what, what if they had like a, like basically a tournament, like a March madness esque tournament in both, in both, um, divisions. It's been talked and about. They and they just played play, like once the season is back. Um, I think that's how you salvage it and just make it so that like everybody has a fair shot. Obviously there were teams that just weren't going to make the playoffs. It was evident, but the, the, the thing, like there was some tough competition, like towards the like eighth seed. Well, I think that's where it gets Um, a little tough because you have the, uh, the ninth and 10th seeds that were fighting for that eighth seed. So if you just start the playoffs as is, then you have those people who are going to be griping about the spots. Exactly, and th- and that's kind of where it came in. Like you give, you give the teams who have clinched the playoff spot a bye, or at least like first place in each league. I- I'm j- I'm not just saying that as a Lakers fan. You you also do it for the Bucks. I think uh, you give them a bye, and then the rest of it is essentially a big tournament. You know, um, sixteen or fifteen teams. I think um, maybe eliminate eliminate the. Uh, Fucking the last place, and just play off till the death, um, and then you know it's just a big tournament. I think that would be a cool way to kind of salvage the season with those ninth and tenth seeds that were that were really really fighting their asses off to try and get there. And I think it would be like you know it, it would be the most fair way. You just have like a like a maybe like a playoff s tournament, but uh, best of three games or something like that where you can kind of expedite the process, but just make it so that like everybody has a fair shot and we still get a little bit of our season left. Tyler, what do you think about that? I mean, yeah, that's, you know, that, that could definitely be something where I think could happen where they just jump right into just a playoff format. I don't know how deep the tournament would go, but I could definitely see him going that route. I mean, I, I've said on the last couple of episodes, I wish they would just, I, w- I wish they would just trash this season and get ready for next season. It's uh, it's it's too bad that I can I can tell that they're really pushing to kind of salvage the season, but uh, maybe that's just me being pessimistic with the whole coronavirus thing. But I think it's going to be a while until we can get back to normal, and you know, rather than mess up two different seasons, uh, just take your loss with this year and move on to the next year. Yeah, I think. It's pretty evident that the NBA is doing everything they possibly can to salvage the season, even if that does mean pushing back the start of next season and pushing back the draft and free agency and all of that. And I think ultimately it put like them trying to do everything they can to salvage the season this season and pushing next season back. I think that's going to be a permanent pushback to where we're not going to see NBA basketball until Christmas time. Uh, realign, the, the, yeah, the beginning. realign to that. Yeah, and that's going to be the future of the NBA calendar. That'd be crazy. I, 
every day. That, I, I agree with that. I just my question is like, as for this season, like let's say they do just shut it down. Um, who do you? How, how do you decide? Like, is there a winner? We, no. I mean, obviously, we all lost. There's no NBA season left, but <laughs> there's no winner. There's no like. There's no clear favorite for championship. It's just the season's moot. When we look back in the annals of history, the year 2020 for basketball just ceased to exist. Yeah, essentially. I, th- I think well, it would. I think it would be similar to like the World Series with the war, where like if you look at a list of World Series winners. It says, like, no World Series due to World War. Uh, right. Like, if I was Adam Silver and, like, I canceled the season, I would make sure it says in the record books for 2020 that the season was suspended and canceled, canceled. due to coronavirus. There was no champion. There's an asterisk on the season, whatever. Or not an asterisk on the season, but just a, a note on the season that they yeah. didn't finish the season. Yeah. There wasn't a champion. Uh, and you just resume the next season. Like, Move on to twenty twenty one. It's just not going to be the Lakers back yeah. too quick, and somebody gets you know, and one person gets sick, whether it's like staff or players, you know, it could cause a whole another major step back. It's going to be interesting to see what happens with all this. Things yeah, are going to change though forever, no doubt. It's definitely going to have a lasting impact. Yeah, no, I agree, and it's. It's a bummer, man. I, I, um, it's been it's kind of bleak, you know. Like, there's only so many TV shows you can watch. Um, only so many again, video games again. you can play. Right, exactly. There's only so many times I can lose in 2K um, before I I just want to watch the real thing. You know, so many times I'll I'll play my career mode. You know. <laughs> now I want to I want to go back real quick, Ryan. What, yeah. what would you be in favor of like re like starting sports back up like when it whenever it does but it has to be without fans or would you rather wait until fans can go to games in arenas so but you know what i'm saying yeah i mean yeah no i agree and, and um as much as for like personal benefit i would love to say like you know let's start back Let's start sports back up. I think I just have to agree with Tyler that, like, I mean, this goes way deeper than just, like, the fans. I mean, this anybody can catch this virus. Um, there's there's new, like, there's new, um, clone, like, a cloned version of the virus that's more contagious. Um, I really think that as much as we want to, like, as as much as we want to watch sports and be involved in that community again, it's, it's the safest thing for the, like the United States, the world, for everybody just to kind of stay in, um, make sure that they're safe and that, like, we, you know, we can actually find a, you know, find a cure for this before, before anything comes up. Uh, because, like, you know, these players are touching the balls. Um, you know, one thing, like a ref gets um, sick. You know, it's just, it's just causing an unnecessary spread, you know, and, and it's making it so that, a lot of a lot of people um, can't see their families. I mean, Carl Anthony Towns' mom passed away um, due to the coronavirus. Like, it's just as much as I would love to watch sports again, live sports, for two reasons. I just don't think starting it up is a good um, a good idea at all. Just to keep the community safe and because of the atmosphere, um, 
of of like having the fans and being able to watch the game like in person. Yeah, personally. yeah. It's almost a little. It's it's almost a little selfish, and you know, it's almost like an ethical thing. You know, yeah. You want it to come yeah. back, but I I agree with what you said. It's like you can't just you can't just like force it back when there's a when it comes to like the health of our people. You know. Yeah, because at the at the end of the day, I think also a lot of the players are going to be hesitant to come back. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also like, like when you're when you're talking about like fans at the stadium and not you know versus not, I think it's like I think we should just come down to the players. I mean, if the players feel like it's safe to play, you know, or they want to play, then it's cool. If not, then you shouldn't be forcing these like games with no fans or anything like that. Unless you know it, that's the new norm. Yeah, I think realistically, we don't see fans at live sports games until. Gosh, maybe the end of July, August. Nah, I'm I think thinking maybe further than that. Yeah, next year, because next year. well, no, I would say that they would try to try to do it at least by this year. But like Eric was saying, maybe even later on, just given the circumstances and how they re- begin to reopen things. Think about this: it's like the fact that they're when they're going to reopen restaurants, you can run at like half capacity. So it's yeah. like, how do you deal with the stadium and then? You know, maybe you only see Madison Square Garden. Yeah, maybe you only see half of the stadium. You got so many tourists coming in. You know, so many people from so many different areas coming in. It's like, I don't know. It's a big mess, man. It's gonna be. It's gonna be crazy. The stadium. The the stadiums need. The stadiums too need that that extra revenue, Um, like those extra that extra, you know, ten thousand people provides revenue. Um, to pay the salaries of the employees, uh, pay the salary, you know, to keep the lights on in that place. Um, the it, restaurants around imagine. the stadium. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't imagine that it's some. It's an easy like expense to you know have a lighting bill for Staples Center. You know, so uh, that that extra ten thousand dollars or ten thousand fans goes like a really long way. I think personally, that's just that's going to be a business decision for not even like the play, like the players are going to want to play. I'm sure, but I think it's a business decision that like it's it's almost impossible to keep the doors like open, the lights on in those in those kinds of places without that extra revenue. Yeah. Also, yeah. so it's, it's so they'd probably move to different venues if they were playing with no fans. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, I mean you'd have to. I feel like Jacob because of the lights you know and jacob was saying yeah. like only seat like half the stadium i don't even think it's going to be that i think it might even be like you, fans are only allowed to sit in like the 300s level just because of like social distancing requirements that are probably going to be yeah, in place that, yeah but that doesn't really stop anything from like spreading within the 300 section you no. know what i mean and and, uh, and yeah that's it's just it's a tough it's a tough task man i, I wouldn't want it to be my job no, definitely not. Yeah, to try and transition wow. fans back into the game, like it's gonna be, it's gonna be crazy, and there's gonna be, there's gonna be bumps in the road for sure. Yeah, my dad, my dad actually showed me a picture recently of how they, like, I don't, I don't know who this was from, but he just showed me it was like um, how uh, some stadiums are gonna try and format like their seating, but basically for every four seats together. 
um, it's going to be like 12 seats apart or something, 12 or 14 seats apart, um, which, you know, is crazy. But also they're going to charge tickets. Like if they do reopen stadiums, the, the, the tickets are going to be really expensive as well. In, oh, in, that, that aspect. in L.A. for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, they were already LA, expensive to begin with. Now it's just going to be an, impossible to go to a game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it's just like, okay, so are they only going to let season ticket holders come in then? Because it's like, you know, if you got if you got season tickets, you know, how many people got season tickets? That's going to fill up quite a bit. It's like, there's got to be, I mean, there's a lot of factors, but it's going to yeah. be. But, all right, yeah. let's, let's move on now. We got the Last Dance episodes five and six to recap. And before we get to episodes five and six, I wanted to quickly highlight an, an article from the LA Times that was written by Arash, Markar, uh, Arash Markazi about The Last Dance, and I found so many interesting points in this article. Like, basically, he detailed a lot of the behind-the-scenes work that's been going on with The Last Dance because of it having to be moved up because of the coronavirus. So he said in... Arash Markazi said in the article that the the documentary wasn't supposed to debut until June 2nd, which would have been two days before the NBA Finals started. Two episodes would be aired between games, and it was going to fill the off-day gaps and wrap up before Game 4. He also said that when LeBron was on the road trip and podcast saying ESPN needs to release the documentary as soon as possible, and he knows it's done, so just release it, the documentary was in fact not done. John Stockton was interviewed the day before the season was suspended. The director, Jason Hahir, conducted every interview for the documentary except for John Stockton's because he was worried he could potentially get stuck in Spokane, Washington because of the state of the country and travel restrictions that were put in place. He sent questions. The director sent questions to a local producer in Washington who conducted the interview on March 10th the last interview for the documentary. Then two members of the production team in New York tested positive for COVID-19 the same day the season was suspended, meaning everyone on the production team had to start working remotely. None of the episodes of the documentary were completed as of January 1st, 2020. Only three episodes were completed by March 16th, the day New York imposed stay-at-home orders, and episode nine was locked in and finished on May 1st, according to Marcazzi's article. So this this documentary has been put together so quickly. It's been fascinating to watch. And for Arash Marcazzi to, to detail all of that, I just, I thought it was incredible journalism. Yeah, that's a cool story. That's crazy. And considering of what they're getting as far as information, you know, this is a 10-part series. For it to just be filmed uh, almost last minute as far as the last touches of it, that's crazy in itself. Well, and they were planning on it coming out a lot later, so they they were working on a different timeline, and then all of a sudden... But they figured, I mean, ESPN, they're smart um, to begin with, that they figured if they release this now, that means that they have to push things ahead of schedule. Look at how much more viewers you could get. Well, yeah, episode. You were going to get a lot, anyways. Episodes five viewers on Sunday night had was averaged at five point eight million. Episode six viewers averaged at five point two million. 
the average viewership for episodes one through six is 5.8 million viewers. Yeah, people have nothing to I'm, do. I'm curious. Sorry, God. No, no, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, yeah, but people have nothing to do, and they look uh, towards Sundays. Sundays are their best days of the week. Oh, no. It's if a, you're a sports fan. It's a cultural moment every Sunday night to to be watching the last dance. Yeah, you yeah, you clear your schedule. Ryan, what were you going to say? Yeah, I'm curious to know cuz they come out two at a time. I'm curious to know where the like 0.6 million people like dropped in between the two episodes. Obviously, like the I think the Kobe thing was pretty a pretty a huge, but um, it, it has been I mean, I actually have been binge watching it. Um I watched the last the last six episodes in the last three days preparing for for this podcast (laughs) Uh, we appreciate your hard work i've done more cramming for the for this podcast than i did in college and i used to literally open up a book (laughs) like three hours before a test so i this is how serious i've been taking it i watched the entire docuseries thus far but i'm curious to know where that drop went was it was it because everyone was intrigued by kobe or was was there any like do you know do we know i'm honestly not sure i think i don't know maybe it's 10 o'clock on a sunday families kids are going to bed some people got to work even though they're working from home early in the morning well honestly i think it's how they tease it because um last week they teased it as he was going into the all-star game and the first batch of episodes, they tease it as what was uh, Dennis Rodman's comments during that season. And so I think it's kind of how they're previewing it. And this this prior week, it was the 98 All-Star Game. And obviously, people know that that was one of the first marquee matchups between Jordan and Kobe. So I think it, uh, the Kobe part does have uh, a big factor in why people watch that one more. Okay, yeah. I mean, great episode, I must say. Yeah. So, all right. Uh Ryan, like I, like I told you before the show, the the way we've kind of been recapping the episodes is I just have like a list of moments that I kind of noted as I was watching the the episodes yeah. that we'll kind of run through. So episodes five and six were mainly about the first three-peat, the dream team, the experience in Barcelona, and Isaiah Thomas being left off the team. We also got to see some things I wasn't expecting to see or hear MJ touch on. Uh, we kind of touched on the first thing I wanted to talk about. Obviously, it opens with the 98 All-Star Game, and we get to see Kobe and MJ interact before the game, during the game, and we get to hear firsthand from Kobe before he passed away uh, on his relationship with Michael Jordan. They kept their brotherhood so close to the vest. Not many people knew the lengths of their relationship. They really were big and little brother and it was remarkable to to see and hear things from Kobe looking back and MJ in the moment getting to hear him talk about Kobe in the locker room with uh, the rest of the Eastern Conference players Uh, I thought we were going to get a little bit more Kobe like from that interview that they shot in Costa Mesa uh, than just the opening sequence but there is still four more episodes, and so maybe we do get to see a little more Kobe in later episodes. But overall, that opening sequence I just thought was really cool, uh, getting to see yeah. MJ interact with the Eastern Conference players, getting to see Magic walk into the Eastern Conference locker room and them be like, oh, he's with the West, he's with the West. And then Magic is like, no, nah, I'm with the old motherfucker. And then he realizes the camera's looking at him. He's like, no, nah, I'm with the old mugs kind of thing. I thought that was pretty funny. 
Well, I, yeah. I think I think the the yeah, biggest uh, the, the biggest takeaway too is from seeing Kobe's uh, his interview is that he kind of squashed all of the debate of of the Kobe MJ uh, who's better. Yeah, you he know? said they both hate yeah. hearing that. that. Was so and, touching. and and to and to me hearing that it's like you have both of these guys basically squashing that beef because to them that's not what mattered. They just wanted to win and at all costs. So that was most important. Yeah. They didn't care about who they were being compared to or who else was was being compared to them. So to me, hearing that from Kobe again was probably one of the the best moments of that first episode. Yeah, that uh, that that part that you mentioned just was really touching. I mean, each each player is is great in their own aspect, and like like you know, everybody's the goat for something, and and just. Like, for Kobe to just admit that, you know, we all knew Kobe was confident, but for him to humbly admit, um, you know, humbly admit that, like, everything that, that made him amazing and one of the best was from MJ because he looked up to MJ, that just kind of solidifies, like, why Kobe is actually one of my heroes, just that you can humbly accept that, you know, so I can learn from this person. I don't have to be better than him. I'm learning from him. Everything that he ever did is in, is in me, and that's why I'm great. That was a it was, it was a really touching moment to watch. I uh, I had to watch that several times, so it wasn't like binge mode, you know. But it was really a really cool scene to watch. Once again, I mean, it was sad seeing him on him up on the screen, um, you know. Right, thinking about that back in back in February, it's it's definitely been tough ever since that, but. To, to hear him and, and at least have him kind of chime in on the dock, uh, this, this like pretty monumental dock, is, it was, was pretty awesome to see. Yeah, him saying that he wouldn't have his five rings without Michael, was it was remarkable for me as a Kobe fan and watching this as a Kobe fan, trying to learn so much about Michael that Kobe knew and saw in Michael and what made Kobe want to be great. That's what I'm trying to take from this at least. Well, it was a clear passing yeah. of the torch because you uh, you get Kobe in his second year in this All Star game, and they're talking about Kobe in the locker room in the Eastern Conference locker room, and they're just and Jordan says um, he says a quote in in that in the documentary where he doesn't let the game come to him; he goes and gets it. Yeah. So Jordan already knew the kind of worth ethic and the passion that Kobe had already. So that's why I think that their bond was so tight because they had very similar in, in certain aspects, but also very different too. And like you mentioned, not a lot of people knew how close they were, but because of their drive and passion to win championships and just how they wanted to dominate, that's what brought them together. Yeah, most people, when they see Michael Jordan on the basketball court, they're they're scared of him. They fear him. Kobe, in that All-Star game, asked him a question about his turnaround jump shot, and Michael was kind of shocked that he asked him a question, but it sparked something in Michael that showed him that Kobe was a little bit different. Well, yeah, because Kobe wasn't scared, but he also like he wasn't scared of of matching up with Michael. But he also was going at him, and he was asking questions at the same time. Jordan was getting all all kinds of aspects from Kobe. Tyler, what do you think about that opening sequence? It was great. I mean, I, like obviously, I would have wanted more as well, but I also believe that we're going to get more Kobe moving forward, and uh, the, you know, the locker room, you know, comment was awesome talking about he doesn't let the game come to him because that's just kind of like Kobe in a nutshell. And, um, it was definitely a cool access to seeing all the Kobe stuff, but I'm excited to see more. Yeah. I know, I know they got to get, 
I know they got to get more. I, I, I want to believe they're like, you know, at the very end of this documentary, they're really going to, you know, kind of close this strong. And, and he's going to be one of the boys instead talking really good about Jordan. Yeah, definitely. I, I hope, I hope that's the case, but didn't, didn't, uh, I think it was Jacob said that it, it wasn't, the doc wasn't finished in March. Was right. Yeah, no, I, I was, was saying, that? I was saying how, um, I'm oh, sorry. That was, that was Eric. Yeah, no, it basically, it, they finished episode nine, May 1st. Okay. Yeah, so yeah, that was five and, days ago. And, uh, and I'm sure that, you know, they're going to cut up whatever footage they had and kind of, you know, try to maximize it now. Yeah, definitely. So, all right, the next thing I had on the list was we got to see exactly how Michael Jordan ended up at Nike and how Converse passed on him and basically said, we don't think you can get to the level of the players that we have already on Converse. MJ actually wanted to go with Adidas, but the company at the time was at a dysfunctional point in their history and it, it just didn't work out for Michael to go to Adidas and Nike at the time was mainly a track shoe company and they had just come out with this new technology called air soles and MJ's agent, David Falk thought air Jordan sounded good in his head. And he brought the idea to Nike and the rest is history really. And and it's funny too, because they didn't mention this in the documentary, but Jordan almost left for Adidas twice so this first time he wanted to sign with them initially, then he went with Nike. When he had his first two shoes, he was he was mad that, that the designer of the first two shoes went to Adidas, and so he was going to leave for Adidas. But because of the third Jordan shoe installment, that's what made him stay. But it's funny because he, this could have been a completely different world in how you see sneakers and culture if he would have went with Adidas. Or even if Converse didn't pass on him. Exactly. Because that was the shoe at the time. Uh, Bird and Magic, they wore that shoe. They were the face of the NBA, but because now you have a new face of the NBA coming in, they didn't feel like he was worthy enough at the time in his career. So why are we going to give you a signature sneaker? I, I thought it was so f- fascinating that he uh, he literally... He did not want to get even on the plane to go to Nike. Yeah, his mom had to force uh, I mean, him to go you, take the meeting. Yeah fascinating to me that that is his literal identity now is like air jordan the whole brand like and he had i mean crazy crazy that like converse it's all blessing like i bet he i bet he looks back and laughs at it i mean i can't imagine that's insane to me that he was forced to forced to do it forced to go go and then they offered him like 150k more than what what he was expecting. Like they really believed in him. It was awesome. Yeah, now his brand's worth more than Converse. Pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Now that's that's it's crazy to hear Jordan say out loud. You know, I wanted to go to Adidas. You know, basically his mom talked him into getting on the plane. It's just like thank God he got on that plane, right? No, yeah, no. I mean, their yeah. their life. I mean, their life probably would have been the same either way. It That's just would not... have been with a different company. Yeah, they, Jordan. You know, as a player, would all worked out. But let's just everybody reap the benefit of Jordan getting on that plane that day. You know, that's a day in history we want to just keep the same. Definitely. 
So, all right, next thing on the list is a couple things I wasn't expecting to be in the documentary. I was not expecting the Republicans buy shoes to story at all or the Atlantic City story, which I had no idea about. MJ went on a media strike because he was sick of how the media was talking about him after the Atlantic City incident. Then Ahmad Rashad, well, then he goes to Ahmad Rashad and says, I'm ready to break my silence. Let's do an interview. He does it in his sunglasses. If he did the gambling interview with Ahmad Rashad in today's day and age with the sunglasses on, Twitter would have set him on fire. <laughs> yeah, there would have been uh, there would have been memes made about him. You kind of cut out for me. Say that one more time, Ryan. You kind of you kind of cut out for me. What can you repeat what you just said? Oh yeah, no, just All the, I heard was Twitter. Oh, Twitter just would have set MJ on fire if he did the interview with Ahmad Rashad with his sunglasses on in today's day and age. Right, right, yeah. He would have been roasted hard. As if as if MJ wasn't being roasted as uh, on the internet by Twitter <laughs> uh, enough in 2020. Yeah. Tyler, what did you what did you think about them touching on the Republicans buy shoes too and the Atlantic City story? Well, I mean, I've always known that kind of the uh I've always known that he had the stigma of a gambler and the stigma of kind of just like not really an activist and at all. Um but I didn't know these specific stories and these were kind of just the origin stories behind that stigma and why they were so why it was such a big deal is because of that day and age, not having social media and stuff like he was getting it so much. He was getting so much more pressure than like people in that day and age can imagine. I mean, now, nowadays people have cameras in your face everywhere you go, every athlete, but it's like back then it just didn't happen. And I think it really just wore him down. Yeah. I just, his day-to-day life, that whole sequence of that, that montage that they showed, in I don't remember if it was five or six, but fans following him everywhere he goes, every step he takes, it, it was just pure madness, and it it got to him. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that ultimately, you know, the uh, the Atlantic City, the Atlantic City stuff, you know, really started to just kind of chink the armor, and he was portrayed as this per- perfect person. It's like nobody's perfect, and you know that was probably hard for him to deal with, and then also the you know the political kind of backlash for not supporting. Um, that's just kind of like who he was. You know, he says, I'm just not an activist. It's just we expect so much out of these, like, black athletes to be, you know, speak up. Um, but it's really not – it's not necessarily their responsibility. Um, yeah. And so it's like it, it's, it was just people trying to chink his armor, and it's like ultimately his basketball legend is kind of set in concrete. Uh, but those were those were cool stories to learn to kind of just see, you know, where all that came from, because I always knew gambling was a part of this history as well. Um, and it's and I had no idea about, you know, the specifics in like the early 90s and stuff like that. Well, and the fact that he had to testify in that Slim Buller case, the, this guy Slim Buller that Michael yeah. was friends with gets caught up in a case for money laundering and drugs and a couple other things and police find a check written out from MJ to Slim Buller for $57,000 that 
Turn, yeah. turns out was a gambling debt and originally michael first said it was for something else yeah he to, called it a he was paying back a loan yeah paying back a loan to, to save the embarrassment of himself but then michael gets dragged into court and he has to testify under oath and say it was a gambling debt and that was a a big turning point yeah. in people trying to which, yeah which was crazy i i had no idea about that you know like that, that's uh that's intense but you know, I just at the end of the day, I just think he had so much money. I don't think his gambling was ever to a point where he was like really in trouble. Right. And David Aldridge said it in his interview. He said Michael Jordan gambling ten thousand dollars is like us gambling ten dollars. Like he's good for it. Like he has the money. Yeah, exactly. And so I think it's just like it's just the way it's our perspective on it. You know, we want to we want to tear this like monumental figure down because no one's perfect, but it's just like, we're kind of overreacting. It's not that it's, it's, there's a lot of people that gamble. It's not something that's that's that crazy. Is it the most healthy habit in the world? No, but he's a billionaire. I mean, let, if the guy likes to play blackjack, let him play blackjack. Yeah. Michael said it. He he didn't break any laws. And they, they even said it in the, the documentary. They had a newscast from, one of the days after the the whole incident was he didn't break any laws. He didn't break any team rules. He didn't break any NBA rules. He just hurt people's ex- – he, he violated people's expectations. He didn't live up to their expectations. Well, I think because yeah, he was such a, a global icon at that time, and he was yeah. the face of the NBA that you start to nitpick and you want to find something wrong with that person. And with him, it was the gambling. So they said, well, if, if he's this perfect of a person, this is his little flaw, and now we're going to attack it. So that's what they did with the whole Atlantic City. And, and news cycles are way slower back then. And so it's like there's no social media. There's no instant access. So people are just focused in on him. You know, it's just like enthralled, and it, it's kind of just overdone. You know, it's I think it was kind of – but it, I really enjoyed it all that all those stories in the doc though it's it's a really cool like kind of piece to his story what do you think about all that ryan yeah i mean i i agree and um and and something like you think about like i think i watched the uh the uh the dark knight recently and and it's like you you either uh die a hero or you live along live live long enough to see yourself become the villain and so basically Michael Jordan has had so much time in the limelight as this perfect person um, that like it almost like Jacob said, it just was like too sketchy to believe that something was not wrong about him. So they took such a minor detail of his life that he liked to gamble. He liked to compete and he, you know, they blew it up to be something terrible about this person. I mean, at the end of the day, we all like to gamble. To the to the rare extent of of what Michael Jordan used to bet, no. But Lord, I've I've spent long nights at a at a Vegas table. I, I stayed oh, at one till have. nine in the morning. Yeah, I stayed at one till nine in the morning. Like you know, we've all had those long nights. We all like to gamble. I don't. It's, there's nothing wrong with us for doing that. There's nothing wrong with him. We all like to play online. I mean, we all like to play poker online now because of. Uh, COVID, but we all like to play poker with our friends. Does that does that make us like bad people? It's just the idea that he spent so much time and so much money doing it. They they blew it up to believe that he was this villain. Yeah, you know, and, and he, he even wasn't. he well, even said it. He he 
he was like, I don't have a gambling problem. I have a competition problem. Right. Exactly. Well, it's like, I think that, I think the reason why, you know, it's because like, it's kind of like alcohol. It's like, Hey, some people can drink. It's not a problem, but some people drink and ruin their lives. And that's kind of how it is with gambling. But he, I don't think his was out of that level. I think that he makes so much money that it's like, dude, let the guy, he's not, he's not betting. Like, like he said, in the, he's not betting his wedding ring or cars or his house, or it's not like he's not betting anything he doesn't have. You know, he's not hurting for money. Yeah, he wasn't really putting his life in jeopardy, but you could just see his competitive drive. He was gambling with security guards. Oh, the, the, one of my favorite moments in the entire documentary was when his security guard, John Michael Wozniak, who it turns out ends up becoming this viral sensation, and then we find out. <laughs> now he does. We, we find out he actually passed away in January. Yeah, RIP John Michael Wozniak. He, uh, he hits Michael with the iconic shrug after beating him in a game of quarters for 20 bucks. That was epic. Oh, it was one of my favorite moments of the entire documentary so far. But like, but see that, see that right there is a clear example of like just how competitive he was. Like you're gambling with the security guards, not even with your fellow like NBA players in that video. You know what I mean? Well, and one of his former teammates, I forget his name. He was one of the centers. He said that Michael, Scotty, and Ron Harper would be in the back of the plane playing for thousands of dollars, and then him, BJ Armstrong, a couple oh, other it was guys. Paxson. They're playing. Well, no, it wasn't Paxson who was saying the no, story. No, 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 no. But Paxson was one of the players playing up, up, uh, in the front. Right. They would be playing in the front. They'd be playing for a dollar a hand. And Michael would come up and be like, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, I want to play. And John Paxson would look yeah. up at him and be like, why do you want to play with us? And Michael just says, I want your money in my pocket. That's the only reason he wanted Will, to play. It was, it was, it was Will Purdue. Uh, yeah, Will Purdue. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, and that just shows everybody gambles. Yeah, now, now he was on another level, but he's got the money to do it. So I see nothing wrong with it. Yeah. All right. Uh, I got a few more things on the list. Uh, next thing, Michael Jordan took offense to people comparing Clyde Drexler. Uh, Clyde Drexler. I can't talk. Clyde Drexler to Michael Jordan. If I, w- um, I want to know, I want to know if Michael Jordan was in '99, what do you think Clyde was at? Because I, I saw people saying that Clyde, if Michael was in '99, Clyde was probably in '91, '92. If we're ra- if we're rating them, yeah, uh, honestly, '92 was the first time that popped in my head. It's funny you said that, but Drexler was Drexler was nice though. It's not. I'm not right. And Michael Drexler says he. The- Michael says he's like Clyde was a good player. It's just like he wasn't on my level, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I think they called him Diet Jordan or whatever. Yeah, I didn't know like, that. That's funny. He was like a knockoff Jordan. He was like a knockoff Jordan. You know, he had he had the hop. You know, he had the hang time dunks. He, you know, he kind of had the. He was a, a high volume scorer. So they had like similarities in their game, which is where. The uh, the comparisons grew, and then Clyde was like a top ten player in the league. So he was that Blazer team, though, has got to be one of the got to be one of the worst teams to make it to the finals. I, I feel like that's no. that's pretty easy. Call See, oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I give I give honestly all the respect to those teams that made it to the finals in the nineties. So the Blazers, the Suns, the um, the Sonics, and the the Jazz, they just ran into a hell of a competitor in Jordan. Yeah. No, I, I, I know, know that, but I'm just saying that was a very that was not a that's not a tough 
There was a lopsided finals. And that's one of the weaker NBA finals teams. Like the early nineties West is not like what we think of. All those teams were really young. Like the Sonics were really young in the early nineties. It wasn't until like the late nineties that the West was really strong. Um, now I wasn't trying to hate on the Blazers either, but I just think that like it was a one man show with Clyde. So that was the team. Like how many one man shows make it to the NBA finals? Uh, it doesn't happen that often, you know, too often. Um, I don't think anybody's discounting Clyde Drexler. I just think like like during this era, there's no there was nobody like. I, I mean, I'm not offended by it. I'm not Michael Jordan. I don't think anybody was really in the same league. Like, they all played for the NBA, but, like, Jordan was in his own territory. And you said Jordan's in 99. I would put Clyde at maybe, like, a 90, like, 394. But, you know, I, I mean, I understand. Like, uh, like, I think, yeah, Jacob just said, like, they, you know, these teams are good, and then they just ran into a hell of a competitor with Jordan. Like, there's there's no comparison when it comes to that, you know. Yeah. All right. Next thing think, on the. I think oh, Jordan. Sorry. I think Jordan's first. I think Jordan's first three feet, competition wise, was not as hard as his second three feet. That was. I probably like, agree with that. You know, I I know that I know that they ran into Jordan and like had no shot. You know, not even close to as good. I think a lot of the Eastern Conference teams were better than those Blazer teams. Um, I've just always thought that that Blazer teams like up there with like Iverson Sixers and like the kids, New Jersey Nets as like some of the worst teams to make to the finals. Yeah. The 07, the 07 Cavs. All right. But it's also like, I mean, imagine this, like, like the way I see it is like all these people were playing super smash bros. Right. And they got through all the levels and then they had to play the hand. And that was Michael Jordan. <laughs> that was this, this Bulls team. And, they just couldn't yeah. get past the hand. They keep getting flicked by this guy. You could be the best in your division. You could be the best team the league like the league has ever seen. Michael Jordan's going to come and stomp you. There's no comparison. He's you know in this time he's unstoppable. Yeah. All right. Yeah. The next thing I got on the list, and now we're getting to to the juicy stuff. MJ swears it wasn't him who left Isaiah off the dream team. He said that when Rod Thorne called MJ he Rod Thorne said that the person Michael was thinking of would not be playing when Michael asked him who's all playing and basically MJ says it wasn't him Michael Wilbon then says nine members of the dream team didn't want to play with Isaiah in his interview in the documentary he then tweets out on Monday that he had five people contact or he had multiple people contact him since episodes five and six came out saying he was wrong about the amount of players that didn't want to play with Isaiah. So he was apologizing to Isaiah for getting it wrong. Magic Johnson was mentioned by Michael Wilbon as one of the people who had, who had had a hand in Isaiah, not being a part of the dream team in the documentary, but magic went on first take the other day, or he went on first take yesterday uh, and denied that and he basically said that four or five members of the dream team had problems with Isaiah and that in fact because the dream team was going to have to live together for two months be around each other that if Isaiah was there the vibe would have been completely different I think the biggest takeaway from this though is 
it's a clear-cut message that Isaiah and that Pistons team were such a-holes to the rest of the league on how the style that they played that none of these guys wanted to play with them. You said nine people did not want to play with Isaiah well, Thomas. Well, Michael Wilbon first said nine people, then he ha- he had people he shortened reach it, right? Yeah, he had people reach out to him after the episodes aired and say it was less than nine people. Magic Johnson said on first take the other day that it was probably about four or five people on the Dream but Team. But see, that's already four or five. That's maybe some of your starters. But that's and almost that, half the team already. Exactly, and that chemistry right there is already cool. screwed up if you bring him onto this team. Now, the whole relationship between him and Jordan, that one is for sure justified because of and, what they had to endure to get past the Pistons. And that was the most public at the time, so people are using Jordan as probably the scapegoat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, see, this was the best nugget, I think, so far, uh, was finding out the kind of the truth behind this all. Now, I don't know what the number is. I I know that at least Bird, Magic, and Jordan do not like the Pistons. And so I I do believe, like what Jacob said, they just didn't didn't want a bad boy Piston on the team, whether it be three guys or nine guys. It wasn't a good chemistry fit. And my whole life, I grew up thinking it was just Jordan's like, no, we're not letting this dude on the team. Even last, last episode, I thought that. Yeah. You know, like, so that... So this really was like, you know, I, it's not that often where I learned like a ton of new information about like NBA history. And this was like, this was a good one. And I definitely understand what happened now. And I think that when they were making the team, it just didn't make sense to bring on the biggest, the, you know, one of a bad boy piston. Yeah. I, I think this, this situation is kind of like you, you, you know, Everybody, I'm sure you guys play enough pickup basketball to know there's always that one person you hit up um, that will get you numbers, but um, will never you'll never hit them up outside of basketball, and that's kind of what my take on Isaiah Thomas was. He's the you know he's someone you see on the court, and then but like for things that you want to venture in, the Team USA we have all these they're all these guys are homies. They want to work together. They want to bring home like the gold medal for for, for uh, the United States. Like he's just not the guy that you invite to 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 like kick it with, past playing basketball with. And he's uh, easily better. He's easily better than two yeah. of these people on this that made the dream team, and he could have easily replaced them. But the fact is that yeah, like you're saying, he puts up the numbers and he was a prolific scorer and NBA star. But chemistry-wise, it was not going to work if he made this team. Yeah, and Michael Which Jordan... Is the most important thing. For sure. And Michael Jordan even said that, like, right behind Magic Johnson as the best point guard of all time, in his eyes, is Isaiah Thomas, and he respects Isaiah's game, but he just still hates him to this day. Yeah, he gave him his props. That's not the issue, but he just can't stand the guy. Yeah, it had nothing to do with basketball. It had, it had everything to do with personality and Isaiah Thomas being bad boy piston. Yeah, but hey, that—that's what you get for being a bad boy piston. I mean, you got to reap the benefits and you got to, you know, deal with the consequences of it all. You know, the, he beat all those motherfuckers talking shit. You well, know what I mean? He yeah. Beat all he beat all those dudes. So um, there's a reason why you know he is where he is, and so I think he's just got to—he's got to live with it. You know, you're you're a bad boy piston. You can't feel bad for the the good guys not liking you. Yeah. Now, the next thing I have on the list, this was more of a a well-known story because it was publicized in the media during the the actual time of it taking place. But Tony Kukoc's first game against Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, 
in the USA versus Croatia game and how Michael and Scotty told the rest of the dream team to save Kukoc for them and only them, and they just embarrassed Kukoc. He played better in the gold medal game, but, I mean, USA still beat Croatia by 30-plus in both games. And this was a European stud, too. And for Jordan and Pippen to make a statement to shut him down, just because Jordan even, he touched on this, that Kraus was a huge fan of Kukoc, and he, he really wanted to draft him, and he spoke so highly in him. So because Jordan, he needed little little um, little feats to accomplish, he wanted to make it a point to shut down Kukoc so that Kraus could be in the stands or on TV, wherever he was watching the game, look and say, all right, you know what, Jordan's obviously the better defender and better player. You guys there? Sorry. Do we lose you? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I think I cut out for a second. Oh no, I... my internet's terrible. <laughs> well, no, I thought I thought we lost you guys. What did What did you guys think about that whole sequence of the behind the scenes of the Tony Kukoc situation uh, in Barcelona? Uh, uh, I was pretty familiar. I was pretty familiar with it, uh, but it was awesome to see. You know, just listen to him and and listen to his side of the story because you know i always heard the story you know of him being drafted by the bulls um play playing them in the olympics before he'd ever played in the nba and pippen and jordan just kind of you know shutting them down when they played against him that was always kind of the story i had heard but it was cool to kind of hear tony's perspective on it and you know kind of see why why it all happened the way it happened yeah because from kukoc's um from his perspective, he said he didn't do anything to these players for them to like, you know, you know, play so aggressive on him. But he said that he sucked it up, and that's why he played better in the gold game. Well, yeah, yeah uh, coach, man, he could play. He was a stud. Yeah, that that whole dynamic. I mean, I'm learning a lot. Um, I had I wasn't very familiar with it, so um, uh, I. You know, I found it very fascinating. I thought it was a cool, cool dynamic. Um, obviously, you know, the whole thing with Jerry Krause and, um, you know, how much the, how much uh, Jordan and Pippen just hated this guy. They would go to great lengths just to shut down Kukoc. I thought that was very, very cool. Um, also, you know, terrible at the same time. But um I didn't really think much of it. I, I found it interesting um, to know where their motivations lied, but I, I mean, I didn't really think much of it. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're I good. got a little distracted. You're good. Um, I kind of forgot the question, but um, yeah, no, I thought I thought it was cool. Uh, I, learning about new players and just kind of seeing his side, where he's like, I, I don't, I don't know what I did wrong. I'm just, I'm just here to play basketball. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, and then seeing him pick it up and hearing the justification about it when he was like, he was like, uh, someone else said, you know, he, that, that poverty, that uh, oppression that he had in his, com- in his country, just kind of like being able to just take the bullshit and just run with it, like, yeah. like fuel this fire. And he came back in the gold medal game, obviously he played better, but he still lost. But it was just cool to kind of, to learn more about that guy. Yeah, and even when, like, you you could see when the director brought the situation up in the interviews with Michael and Scotty, they were both like, listen, we love Tony, he's a great teammate, but at the time, we couldn't stand 
the situation that was going on because of what Jerry Krause was doing and basically holding Tony Kukoc out in front of them as bait when he's trying to negotiate a contract with Scottie Pippen and Scottie and Tony play the same position, basically. Well, yeah, Krause was basically saying that Kukoc is, is the future of the Bulls. And to that, that was a slap in the face to Jordan and Pippen, especially because Pippen was going through his whole contract negotiations. Yeah, you know, it, was pers- it was personal for Pippen and Jordan, but and Kukoc, that's why he didn't understand what was going on. He was like, <laughs> holy shit, I'm in, I'm in the middle of this, like, family feud, you know. And, uh, but I think it, it all worked out for the best. Although I think Kukoc is the kind of guy that if he was drafted in 2020, he'd be like a premier, he'd be a premier prospect. Like yeah, for sure. Oh, if Kukoc played in the NBA now? He's got that prototypical could, European game. Yeah. Yeah, he would, but His numbers before, would be a before, lot better. Way before it was a prototype game, he was, you know, he was one of the godfathers, you know, just a 6'10", kind of point forward. And uh, he was he was nice, man. He was just, I think he gets a little, you know, underrated because of the era he played in. Um, wasn't necessarily fit for his style. And then the Bulls were so, like, defensive-oriented that he could never crack the starting lineup. You know, he was a top-five player for them, but they wanted the defensive players to start. Uh, and so then you kind of get the stigma of coming off the bench, too. But Kukoc was a, a, a stud, man. Big yeah. fan of his. Yeah. All right, the next thing I got on the list was Michael covering the Reebok logo with the American flag draped over his shoulder. There was no way he was going to get any sort of backlash thrown his way with the American flag draped over his shoulder after winning the gold medal in the Olympics. And he even said in the car with that, that footage, he was like, they have no idea what I have in store for them kind of thing. Oh, yeah, he was, oh, he was smart. Genius. Yeah, if there was one way you were going to cover it up, it's with a flag at the Olympics. Only way to do it. Crushed it. Killed it. Perfect. <laughs> Agreed. Flawlessly executed. All right, uh, the last thing that I had on the list, the Hawks playing a game in the Georgia Dome in 1998 when the Bulls came to town. 62,046 fans were in attendance. I thought it was because of MJ's last season, but it was also because the Hawks' soon-to-be new arena was still under construction. But still, it's the highest-attended NBA regular season game in the history of the league, and it was all because of Michael Jordan, and it was the last dance in 98 i just i didn't know that game ever took place i didn't know they played a game in a football stadium and had sixty-two thousand people at it that's insane yeah i had no idea i had no idea that happened that's what i mean that was dope that was just that's so that's just so michael jordan you know you hear so many of those types of stories about him that kind of just get washed up with each other was that the game that they like like people were like don't don't buy tickets off the of scalpers. They're all fake. There's not one ticket left. That, that was the game, right? No, those no. were Chicago. Those were United Center. Yeah, the, that that was uh, in Chicago. Oh, okay, okay. But that season, uh, that season for the Bulls, their their tickets for the regular season sold out by like noon the day they went on sale. Right. for the whole year. Well, yeah, that was because they didn't know if Jordan was going to come back or not because Krause announced that it was Jackson's last year. And there was media circulation about uh, j- coming from Jordan that if Phil was not the coach, he was not going to play for the Bulls. 
And so everybody didn't know if he was, you know, they didn't know if he was going to return to the Bulls or not. It looking like it was looking like he was not going to be there. So that's why those tickets skyrocketed, and then they sold yeah. out. The future is muggy. <laughs> but so, all right, episodes seven and eight come out this Sunday. Um, what we get baseball in the in episode seven and eight, we get the the first retirement. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what they show in those episodes. Which they were already foreshadowing the retirement in the, what was it, what were we on, seven episodes? Five no, no, six. Yeah, six. They were already foreshadowing it in six when he's laying on the couch yeah. and he's basically saying, like, I'm kind of done. Yeah. And I mentioned it as far as he had these little, like, feats that he had to accomplish. One, you know, dominating Kukoc um, to even 93 when he... Um, he played the Suns, and he had to go against Dan Marley, and Dan Marley was pegged as this great defender, so he shut him up. And even that same year, Charles Barkley winning the MVP of the league and him feeling that, right, you can have the MVP, but I'm going to take the championship. And he had these things, but I think they started to die off a little bit, and he didn't have that edge anymore. And so I think you saw it in the, in this last episode that he starts to lose the edge and the competitiveness, and that's probably what's going to be in episode seven and eight of how he gets that decision, and then he finally retires. Yeah, and and uh, it's going to be interesting, definitely, because in that same scene that you're talking about, he he was saying things like, "Yeah, I mean, a lot of people." you know, say they want to be Michael Jordan, like, uh, like I wouldn't or or something like that. And it's like, I think, you know, there's going to be a whole lot of justification. He wanted to live a, a completely different life. I think it's, it's exactly the opposite baseball, even though it's professional sports, like exactly the opposite of what he was, he was living up to is being in the limelight for everything and anything because of basketball, he was the best at the time. Um, I think he just wanted to live a different life and still be somewhat in the limelight. So I'm excited to see what, what 7 and 8 cover. And I can watch it at a slower pace now that I'm caught <laughs> up. <laughs> Tyler. Yeah, you... I definitely, definitely can't wait, man. It's going to be dope. Yeah. All right. Let's move on now. Tyler, you found a really interesting article on ESPN that was released uh, last week, do you want to kind of summarize it real quick, and then we can kind of get into the the debates we wanted to go over? Yeah, it's funny because it's such a quarantine thing for me to be reading about baseball. Yeah, when you sent a baseball article to yeah. the group chat, I was shocked. Yeah. I know, but I thought it was, it was Eric. It, it, it was just right up my alley because you know I just love things that are kind of like in this list or topic nature, and they go and. I think it's also very quarantine like because it's it's a you know the best uh kind of what is it what are the conspiracy the best baseball every, debates best baseball debate for every single franchise so there was an article for you know every franchise in the league um and so I particularly was fond of the Mariners one just because uh you know coming from that area growing up there and actually you know, witnessing the, the the topic that they talk about, that one was really cool. Um, I also found the Jeter one funny. And uh, and then, yeah, you know, I thought you obviously would find the Dodger one funny, so I shared it with you. Yeah. So, all right, let's let's talk about uh, the, yeah. the Mariners one. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so I thought it was, like, 
the only reason I shared it is because I thought it was a really interesting article because I kind of tiptoe when I, when I'm talking around, you know, baseball people, cause I'm not, you know, necessarily that knowledgeable about baseball, but, uh, I always find it interesting. You know, I was a huge, uh, Ichiro fan growing up. And so him being Japanese, I have, you know, some Japanese in my, in my heritage and, you know, he was a Seattle Mariner and he was MVP his rookie year. And he had all this like, kind of like, you know, he was great. He was just, you know, the hit king. And for him to kind of, you know, always just keep it going throughout his entire career and end up actually, you know, with the amount of hits that he ended up with, uh, it was cool to see someone write an article about him versus P. Rose. Uh, and so I never hop into this debate because I think it's like, hey, you start saying each Rose the hit king in front of a P. Rose fan, you're going to get your head knocked off uh, because baseball people take this really seriously. And I also don't believe that you can take the crown from P. Rose because he didn't get a ball to MLB. Um, but I think that what the article was saying is that he is the hit king, the king of hits. Right. He's not necessarily the, the MLB hit king. Um, they, you know, they talked about what P. Rose faced in the minors compared to what Ichiro was doing over uh, over Japan. They talked about how his average his fall off uh, for his average coming from Japan to America wasn't, you know, it was very, very slight. I, I think, think it was, it was like, like eight like, points. It, yeah, it was, it was really, very, very minimal. And so, um, you know, I thought that was kind of a good indication that, you know, I'm not saying he's the MLB hicking, but I think that this is the guy that I think of all time was the best at getting a hit in the sport of baseball. Um, and, and he has the most, if you, combine his Japanese stats with his MLB stats, he has more than any other human. Um, and so I thought it was really cool that they could phrase it, you know, the hit king, a.k.a. the king of hits, rather than, you know, without disrespecting Pete Rose's title as the MLB hit king. Right. So for those that don't know, Ichiro Suzuki had a total 3,098 MLB hits over 19 seasons, and he hit 1,278 hits in Japan over nine seasons. So Ichiro has a total of 4,367 total hits over a 28-year career. And Pete Rose has a total of 4,256 hits in the major leagues over a 24-year career. So like Tyler was saying, the article was basically saying that Ichiro is the king of hits while Pete Rose yeah. can still at the same time be the MLB hit king. And, and yeah. Ichiro was also, he was not allowed to play in the MLB. So they also wanted to make a point. It wasn't that Ichiro didn't have the talent, wasn't ready, right. uh, was trying to you know sharpen his game. He, he could have been an MLB player at 21, but due to just where, you know, due to the rules of his country, he couldn't come and play in the uh, MLB until 2001. Um, and so and rather versus like, they don't want to, they didn't want to count Pete Rose's minor league hits because a minor league is where someone is like sharpening their skills, getting better. These are players preparing to be a pro, whereas each row was a pro. Right. I think when it comes, when it comes down to these, these, this kind of argument, this is more of just like a, a language like phraseology, like a loophole. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It comes down to like, listen, Pete Rose 
MLB's hit king. Ichiro is a hit king. Like, we could go back in time and look at their little league. They, we could look back at every hit they've ever had. Um, but pro- playing professional baseball from the moment you're out of college or the moment you start a professional career, that's, that, that goes on record. And, and, if, and, and, and Ichiro, you know, the statistics, what, I mean, he, like, sure, playing in Japan is different, but to come back into, um, into the MLB and only drop about .08, and also baseball is not my top knowledge as well. I, you know, I'm a Dodger fan, but, but to drop only a small percentage, of, like a fraction of a percentage, is still impressive. So you can't discount him right. just because he was in another country. He he got as no, many no, hits he, as he as he. Go ahead. You can't you can't say the kid wasn't ready when he like wins yeah. MVP his first year. Yeah, it's he wins like, rookie of the year in yeah. MVP. <laughs> you know, it's like I think that you, you know you're right. They're both the kings, you know, and that's what the article is all yeah. about. That's why I thought it was a well-written article to kind of they kind of like played it very politically where they didn't piss off Pete Rose Pete Rose fans. And they gave each row fans kind of something to get excited about. Definitely. All right. Uh, the next one we wanted to to kind of go over was: uh, Is Derek Jeter overrated? Oh, I know this is. I know I this love, is Tyler's favorite out of all three I of love them. This, I just love this because it's like baseball blasphemy, and I like to give baseball fans a hard time. And I think that you know so much of baseball is kind of the culture and the lore behind it, similar to like high school football. It's just like there's something about it, you know. Like it just has. It's America's pastime. It's ingrained in our culture. And then on top of that, the Yankees are the franchise of all pro sports, right? I, I, they got to be yeah. just kind of the most – they have to be the most recognizable uh, sports team in the world ever. You know, the, the New York Yankees are just kind of everything. And uh, I just think it's really funny because Derek Jeter has, doesn't have great stats to kind of back up his greatness – his greatness purely comes from all that nostalgic type to the of Yankee Yankees. lore. World, world, yeah, exactly. World Series wins, but you know he's got I the team accolades, but he doesn't necessarily have all of the individual accolades that that people and it, seem and to acclaim like, to know, him. Making a Rod play third base is not a stat. You know that's not going to help you. Like right. you're yeah. comparing his home runs, but that's something. You know what I mean? That's like that's something. There's something there. But, like, I just always have had a hatred for Jeter. So, like, I love it when people just start bringing in the stats because, as, you know, baseball is a very statistically driven sport and his stats just don't add up with the greats. And it's funny to me to hear people hate on him because you can you can hear that, just that, that angst for the Yankee organization as well. Yeah, and, I mean, if you look at, like, Jared Carabas, he works for Barstool Sports, he's – probably the biggest Red Sox internet personality fan out there. He tweeted out Nomar Garcia Parra versus Derek Jeter's stats from 1997 to 2003. And the only stat Derek Jeter led between him and Nomar Garcia Parra from 1997 to 2003 was singles. Everything else Nomar and, was better and, at. And, and, and rings. Well, yeah, and rings. Wanted that. That, so that's like, that's why I think it's a, uh, I think it's funny. Like you can, you can hear a, a Boston Red Sox fan go blue in the face talking about no Garcia Parra, and then the Yankees fan will just like tell him how many rings he wanted. It's just like they'll fight. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You 
Ryan, what do you think? But I'm personally like, like I said, my uh, my my baseball knowledge doesn't go too deep into the stats. I I think that Derek Jeter was an icon. Uh, I mean, you don't you don't end up in a Will Ferrell movie from being you know average or underrated. So I don't think he's overrated. I think I think he's gotten his due like diligence, and and I think he's you know solidified as as a great 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 Hall of Fame, future Hall of Famer. He's, he's in the Hall of Fame. Oh yes. He oh sorry, like, my bad. I think it's funny. Like I would consider him like in this this may come from my. It's like, but he's like Julian Edelman to me. Like this dude was just, a, he was along for the ride. You know what I mean? And, uh, well, listen, I but, think, but see, see, I can't say that kind of stuff in front of a, a baseball fan or they'll just hang me up to dry. Yeah. No, listen, I think at the end of the day, Derek Jeter, he's a great player. He's a great shortstop. He's an incredible talent. I just think him being on the Yankees just helped him so much more adding to his lore and the phenomenon of who Derek Jeter is. Yeah, his personal success was boosted up by his team success. That's what it comes down to. So so we're all in agreement that he was, in fact, overrated. Well, I'll let you say that, Tyler. I, I, think, he was over, I think he was overrated. <laughs> As a baseball player, outside the Yankees community, he's, he's overrated. I think so, too. All right. I'll, sta- go, I'll, I'll stand by that one. All right. So the last, I, I think the cool, I think the coolest thing he ever did was make a rock play third base. That's such like it's a, a power move. <laughs> that's such a power move. That's <laughs> so funny to me. But all right, the last one we wanted to talk, uh, touch on was uh, in fact regarding the Dodgers, and the debate for this one was who is the greatest Dodger pitcher of all time? Is it Clayton Kershaw or is it Sandy Koufax? And so I have some of the numbers. Clayton Kershaw has a career ERA of 2.44. He's got 2,464 strikeouts, 169 career wins. He's thrown one no-hitter. He's got three Cy Youngs. He's won one MVP. He's got one pitching triple crown, which means he led the league in wins, strikeouts, and ERA for that season. And he's got five ERA titles. Sandy Koufax has a career ERA of 2.76. He's got 2,396 strikeouts, 165 wins, four no-hitters. One of those no-hitters obviously was his perfect game, the one perfect game in Dodgers history. He's got three World Series rings, three Cy Youngs, one MVP, two World Series MVPs, three pitching triple crowns, and five ERA titles. Jeez. <laughs> Thought you were going to keep going. Uh, I could have. There, there was some other stuff on there. I, I decided to omit. I think if these are blind oh, resumes, like you got to go with Kofax. Yeah. Now, now that's tough for me to say because I'm not a huge baseball fan, but Clayton Kershaw is probably one of my all-time faves, just because I've watched just as much baseball living here in LA as I have in Seattle. So, like Kershaw's been a man ever since I've lived here. Yeah. It's uh, listen. For me, Kershaw and Koufax are equal in the regular season, but it's just that postseason. It's the postseason, and that's that's what counts. Yep. And unfortunately, if you're going to go, like Tyler said, resume per resume, you're going to choose Koufax's resume only because of his postseason success. Now, Kershaw's always had that cloud over him 
of the postseason. He got a little help with the Astros getting caught cheating, but he, he did. But that doesn't solve yeah. his previous <laughs> matchups, though, in the postseason. Right, the Cardinals, the Mets. It, it he's yeah, got th- a long those, history. Those aren't going away. So the I think the, the fact that he's in the conversation, I think, is enough for Kershaw. Hundred percent. He can be and yeah, Kr- even and, without a world without a World Series ring, he's in the conversation. That's pretty fucking impressive, and it just kind of speaks volumes. And, you know, I know you're L.A. people and you don't understand this, but you can be fucking great and not win a championship. It, <laughs> it, it's possible. Now, but if he w- does win a World Series and his season numbers are better than Koufax, do you put him over Koufax? I think it's too late for him to win three. No, 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 no. Uh, I, I, don't mean, I don't mean three World Series. If he, he just got to win one. If he just wins one and his in-season numbers are better than Koufax's. Do you put him ahead of of Koufax? No, no, I got to put... It's tough. It's tough. No, I can't, man. It's it's unfortunate. Like, you're comparing him to a top five pitcher ever. I mean, it's like you have one baseball team of all time. And Koufax had to retire early. If if you got one 40-man roster for the history of baseball, Tanny Koufax probably makes the fucking team. So it's like, it's pretty tough. Um, to compare him to that, but he's yeah, that's that's, that's that's the compliment in itself. Yeah, I don't think one championship will solidify it for for me as a Dodger fan for in the argument because I mean just so much heartbreak has been in the postseason at the hands of Clayton Kershaw as good as he is during the real regular season. I mean, it's just been that's I mean postseason baseball is when I lock into baseball so. That's what I see. I, I know Kofas as, you know, basically the greatest. Um, and it's just been heartbreak after heartbreak for with Kershaw in the postseason. Um, so I don't think one, one championship would solidify. I think you'd have to top three, four, with however many years you have left um, to solidify yeah. it. Plus, Clayton Kershaw has... I mean, does, or Sandy Kovacs has something that Clayton Kershaw doesn't have. He's a member of the tribe. Amen to I that. I was I waiting for it, Ryan. I, I was waiting for yeah, it. I, yeah, I can't, I, can't, I can't turn my back on the tribe. Come on, man. There's so few <laughs> Jewish athletes that you got to – if Sandy Kovac is like – I'm not like out here arguing over what Cassidy, you guys are okay? talking about. <laughs> I'm, oh, I can't, my God. I, I'm not here like – arguing Omri Caspi or like Jordan Farmar is the greatest basketball player because they're Jews. Like Sandy Koufax has the stats and he's one of the few Jewish athletes to get it done as the goat. So I'm, I'm, I'm the, I have Sandy Koufax all day. Hey, you said that's, that's how I feel about each row, my man. There's not a lot of Japanese athletes out there. Not that, you know, I'm only a quarter, I'm only a quarter Japanese, but it's still like, was always fun to see, like, he was, you know, the MVP was a Japanese kid. Yeah, man. That's that's that's, that, that's funny. You got to put on for the that's team. That's fucking hilarious. Yeah. That's you got to put on for the team. But, all right. Those facts. All right, I know, Ryan, I know your time is a little bit limited. Let's just finish it up yeah. real quick with the last topic yeah. of the night. Andy Dalton got released by the Cincinnati Bengals. He, they obviously they're sticking with Joe Burrow, even though I think they could have had Andy Dalton stay as a backup and kind of mentor him. But obviously Cincinnati just wants a complete reboot, a complete culture change. And so Andy Dalton is headed home to Dallas to sign with the Cowboys. He's signed a one year deal worth up to seven million dollars and three million of it is guaranteed. He's from Texas. He's got a house in Dallas. 
What does this mean for Dak Prescott? Why do you think Andy Dalton signed with Dallas? I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. This is a weird one. Just throws a complete monkey wrench and everything just because, you know, I think a lot of people thought he was going to New England. So not only does it affect the Dallas Cowboys situation uh, and kind of with, with Dak Prescott, is this going to upset Dak Prescott? Uh, you know, and then it also affects, you know, New England and Cam Newton and, you know, just the whole quarterback carousel. So it's just a, li- it's a little crazy. I didn't see it coming. Uh, a lot of people didn't uh, see it coming. You know, that's just think, a wild pickup. Yeah. I think after everything that happened with the um, with the Bengals um, and just kind of the rocky road that Andy Dalton has had in Cincinnati um, these past couple of years, I think it's just like it's one of those like close to home. He knows he's he's about to have a backup, like kind of like a backup role anyways. Like he was going to have that if he stayed in Cincinnati. Might as well just be in the city. I mean, who knows? It could be the end. Um, it could be a huge opportunity. Like, I think it's just he, he wants to be, you know, where he's from. I think that's just where he wants to be comfortable. And um, I think he just, you know, I think he's accepting that he's going to be the backup anyways. Um, might as well just be home for it. Yeah, see, I don't think the Cowboys well, did this despite – Prescott, I think it was just more of a depth thing. Ain't nothing like a little co- quarterback competition. Yeah, to me, this is fine. I don't think yeah. this is a huge issue for the Cowboys because now you have yeah. a second option if, let's say, Dak uh, gets injured. The same thing would happen in um, – th- there was another team that signed a backup quarterback like this. I think it was – who was it? The Eagles, I want to say. Yeah, with, with drafting well, Jalen Hurts. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, because you already have well, Wentz, well, but I, it, was more, mean, like, James, it was more of a safety belt. Jameis went to New Orleans. Yeah. Know, yeah. It happens. But but this one just didn't make sense to me because I think that Andy Dalton still could have got a starting job. And then on top of that, it's just like Dak's already unhappy with his, his contract and all that. So it's just, it looks like maybe are they planning for the future? Are they just going to let Dak walk and just roll with Dalton when he walks? You know, Dalton's basically like entering. I know he has a, he's kind of had a riddled. Uh, last couple injury riddled last couple of years, but he's still like a 30 year old quarterback, which is technically actually a prime. Um, it's it's uh, it's just a weird one, I guess. But it's gonna be it's gonna be good for Dallas because you know quarterback competition. You know one of those guys is gonna step up and be you know both those guys can play. So it's gonna be a yeah it's gonna be a good situation for whoever's starting. If Dak's unhappy, you know you've got a good insurance policy. For sure. And it's a, a one-year deal, yeah. so they're not tied long-term to Dalton. And listen, at the end of the day, Tyler, you brought it up, Cam Newton is still without a job. So I think Dalton was looking at, listen, the, here's a team that's offering me a contract. The state of the world is who knows what's, what the hell's going on. Let me take this guaranteed contract to where I'm, yeah. I know I'm going to have a job this year and we'll just see what happens down the road kind of thing. Yeah, right. yeah. People are looking to win. The people are looking to win with with rookie quarterbacks too. It's just like the market for starting jobs. There's guys that you know. There's guys that are taking backup roles. Could be just could be starters purely because there's franchises that want to roll with their young guy and see how it works out. So it's just kind of a it is a weird market right now. And if I, I'm with Stephen A. Smith, uh, if I'm Cam Newton. I'm sitting out of here before I'm taking a backup job. That's like, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's like unreal. Yeah. 
No, I, I mean, I agree with you, Eric. I think he just, I think this is job security. There's so team after last year. I mean, he was the starting for Cincinnati and then they were, uh, uh, didn't he, didn't he get benched for a little bit? Like he got benched on games? his birthday. Yeah. 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 What a day. I mean, he, he, he had the most humbling thing. Nah, he's had his struggles, no doubt, but I still think that he has, like, the capability to be a good quarterback in the league. Yeah. But, all right, uh, Ryan, thank you so much yeah. for taking the time to join us. Of we, course, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, it, it was great having you back on. I know you had been longing to get behind a microphone again. So Yeah, it's been a while, man. So it was, I, yeah. It was great having you on. You got a shout out before uh, before we get out of here. We, we end the show with a shout out. I don't know if you remember. Uh, what do you mean, like shout out, like a person? Or? Shout out whoever you want, whatever you want. Shout, shout out to everybody. Stay safe. Um, shout out to you guys. Thanks for for having me on. I'll look forward to doing this again. Hopefully, you know when there's sports back on, we can actually be in a studio and like and talk and chill and. Hey, isn't it your birthday soon, Eric? My birthday is on Sunday, yes. Cool, man. Well, happy early birthday. Thank you, brother. I appreciate Uh, it. Shout out to you. Shout out to you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, man. Uh, Jacob, Tyler, you guys guys got any shout outs before we get out of here? Not this week. I don't have one. Nah, nah, no shout outs this week. All right. Well, I'm going to shout out real quick ESPN for coming to an agreement with the Korean Baseball Organization or the KBO. The KBO and ESPN's agreement means that KBO games will be broadcast live in the United States, being shown on ESPN and ESPN2 and commentated by ESPN broadcasters from their homes. I watched the first game the other night, which was called by Carl Ravitch and Eduardo Perez. I was up until about 1.30 in the morning, Monday night, turning into Tuesday, watching the NC Dinos versus the Samsung Lions because it was the first live sporting event televised in the United States in 54 days. I've adopted the NC Dinos as my favorite team in the KBO. They got a victory on opening day over the Lions, 4 to nothing. They play their next game Thursday morning at 2.30 in the morning Pacific time against the Lions again. And as you can tell, I'm going a little bit crazy without live sports, so it was nice to watch some live baseball, even though it was from Korea. Nice. I hope that that's the state of the world, Brent. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I'm staying up till one thirty in the morning to watch Korean baseball. It's it's pretty pretty scarce out there. That's how you know we've lost it already. Literally. So with that, that wraps up this episode of the Sports Kingdom Show. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you decide to listen to the Sports Kingdom Show so you can stay up to date on the newest episodes of the show. Don't forget to follow at TSK Show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Follow all of us at the Duke of Sports, at Tyler Pacholke, and at Jacob Double underscore Gonzalez. Ryan, you want to shout out your social media real quick? Yeah, just my Instagram is my name, Ryan Gilderman. All right. We appreciate you all so much for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the TSK Show. Peace.